All right, thank you. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Anyways, uh, this is our passage today, and because we're talking about something we had talked about last week, we had touched on a bit, we talked about the idea of faithfulness. Paul enters into the city of Corinth after going to Athens, um, and he has some bad experiences with some people there, um, whom he knows very well because he was one of them, um, the Jewish leaders there, and it gets so filled with strife and bitterness that he swears them off and he says, I'm done working with you. I'm going only to the Gentiles from now on. And he leaves the synagogue and God gives him this vision and calls back to him and says, hey, no, we're not, we're not done. I want you to continue speaking and doing this work. And eventually we know that Paul was able to plant a church filled with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to come together. And he was able to redo this in Rome as well. And he was able to do this in several ways. Um, and this was an incredible feat bringing two people together that had never been together before, that had always just been separated as like an understanding of like that's God's will. They're always been separate, but somehow they're going to come together uh, and they do so through the gospel um, and they do so through faithfulness. And so I wanted to take another week on this topic and expound upon it more because I didn't have a lot last week uh, to talk about that. So let's pray and we're going to jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything. Um, that you were doing with us, the ways that you were growing us and changing us. I pray that right now you would uh, allow us to be just present here with each other, brothers and sisters gathered in a room together, um, to think about weightier things, deeper things, maybe than we've had to deal with this week. And maybe we have dealt with very heavy things this week. I pray that whatever we have today, whatever you hand us, that it would somehow apply to what we're talking about, what we're going through. I pray that you would be um, in this gathering, that you would be in all of it. And so I lift up those in this room um, who are primed and ready to receive whatever it is you have for them. We, we know you are here. You are working already. I pray that somehow I would join in with that work and that we would all join in collectively in the work you're doing in this room, in this moment. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. All right, so I've said many times the obstacle, the main obstacle to discipleship in America um, especially in the Protestants, especially evangelical church, as if we divided these more, uh, the very the difficult work of discipleship in our country um, is made harder by the fact that everyone has already been discipled fully in the ways of our culture, America, our nation, and every nation that Christians live in. From the moment they're born until the moment they are fully grown, they are being formed and shaped by the cultures around them um, to chase after the same things, to admire the same kings, to practice the same idolatries, to view themselves in the same ways that they do. And the whole while, God is calling us to be discipled, um, disciplined ones, discipled in the path of Jesus. In other words, to constantly be digging these things out of our lives and then and then recentering these things around Jesus. And this is the work of discipleship, and it's, it's hard, it's very, very difficult. Um, because in discipleship, you're helping someone learn to live in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of whatever nation they live in. It's specifically the work of peeling these nations back and helping them understand who they are in God's nation, in the kingdom of God, so they don't confuse their nation with God's nation, all right? Um, so, uh, to see who their king is, uh, to order their life around that king. But how do you fill someone with Christ who is already completely, honestly, full of themselves? 
How do you do that? It's hard to do. It's a hard concept to wrap your mind around. How do you help someone become a citizen of the kingdom ruled by a poor Jewish martyr when our whole lives we have been told we're, we're citizens of the greatest nation on earth? And it, honestly, becoming a Christian seems like a downgrade because our king is not very impressive. He's somebody who was hung on a cross, naked, his beard ripped out. Um, he is somebody whose revolution sort of appears to have failed in the human mind um, and in the minds of the nations around the world. And so oftentimes when you talk to people about Christianity, about living this life that is, that is humble, that is different, that is centered around the communion table, about pouring yourselves out for people around you, um, it's hard to convince people to join the path of Jesus when the path of America that's been laid out before them is like, no, I'm a part of the greatest nation on earth. I don't need that. And so instead, we try to somehow meld these two things together, a bottom-up kingdom of God and a top-down kingdom of earth. And it's the same in every nation where it's tried. Um, But we are called out, though, to be faithful to Christ all through the Scriptures. Not just faithful to Christ, faithful to each other, faithful to the ministry. We are called to pick the good things that God has laid before us and be faithful to them, not pick them up and dabble in them, but go towards them and run towards them and embrace them and be faithful to them. Um, Paul learns this lesson in Corinth. He learns that God has brought him to the city to be faithful to the whole city, not just a part of it, not just a piece of it. Um, and he talks about later on, he will, he'll write a letter to that, to that same city and he'll say stuff like this. He'll say, it is required of stu- stewards that one be found faithful, that we have to be the people who are faithful to the thing. It's not just something we do lightly. It's not just something that like we do for a little while. But we, we are faithful. We're all in with what we're doing. And we center our lives around Christ. And so we're all in on this. We center our lives around our marriages and our relationships. And so we're all in with this around our churches. And so we're all in with this. And so why? Um, I mean, if you look at, uh, at faithfulness as it's described, whenever Paul describes people, his, his disciples and his workers, let me read you some. 1 Corinthians 4.17, he calls Timothy a faithful servant. In Ephesians 6.21, he calls Tychicus uh, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. In Colossians 1.7, we read, uh, you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant who is a faithful minister. Um, and in Colossians 4.9, you have this guy Onesimus, our faithful dear brother, who was one of you. Um, Onesimus, remember him from the book of Philemon, of Philemon fame. He was... He was a runaway slave. He went and found Paul, and Paul sends him back to the house, to his master, where he ran from, but no longer as a slave. He writes a letter to um, his master, Philemon, and says, no, you're going to welcome this kid back as a brother. And he says, so now you're one of them. And now we see him in Paul's letter to Colossae, where he's actually one of the main ministers there. And all Paul cares about is these people remain faithful, that they take it very seriously, that they make it a focus of their life the ministry, the path of Christ, and the people that they have, they have been given to. And so these were men and women who were unshakable in their love for others, their hope for the world, uh, and the mistreatment by the temple leaders, it couldn't shake them. The threats of violence by the Gentiles couldn't shake them. Nothing, nothing could happen that could cause them to change and be like, I could go sell shoes. Like, nothing. They were just faithful. This is what they did. And they wouldn't stop no matter what. No matter how much people pushed back against them and shunned them, they kind of pushed right through it and loved them anyways because this is what God does and so this is what God's people do. And so the question we have is like, where, where is our faithfulness for each, other, for each other? Because we don't live like this anymore. Very few of us are faithful for something for a very long haul. We live in a world where everything is just easy to exchange and change. And the difficulty here, again, is that we have been formed by a culture that is actually very hostile 
to any form of faithfulness at all. We, our, our culture is, is hostile to doing anything for too long, to be too committed to anything. And we are raised from birth to live this way. And so I want to talk about some of the roadblocks that our culture around us and our empire around us has thrown in front of us to keep us from becoming faithful people. Um, and I want to talk about them and see if you see them in your life as well. Um, I'm going to be including some of the work this morning from uh, Dr. Philip Kennison, Gregory Boyd, and stuff like that. Um, and so Kennison's book, Life on the Vine, is a great book if you're interested in reading about uh, Fruits of the Spirit. And so I'm using some of his material this morning as well. Um, so the first thing, okay, so let's talk about some of these things. These roadblocks, if you will, obstacles to faithfulness that are thrown in front of us. Um, one of them to me is very clear. Um, it is that we live in a completely disposable culture. Everything is disposable. Every aspect of your life is now being designed to be something that you do for a while and you get rid of and you upgrade to another thing, another way of being. Uh, we are deeply committed to being uncommitted to anything, like deeply committed to it, um, to as much as possible of our li- in every area of our lives. Um, like very few people ever RSVP'd and said, yes, it's always like maybe. Maybe is sometimes... Sometimes the yes people, most of the time they're the no people, okay? Because if you, if you give it a maybe, then like, what that means is I'm going to decide right before it's time to head out the door. And of course, it's going to be no. And then you get the dopamine hit of like, cancel all my plans, I'm going to watch TV. Well, all you had to do was not say yes to the plans and you would have had that same thing. But we like not being committed to something while still remaining our, our options remaining open. So um, for most of the things that we sell today, the primary virtue of these things is that they are disposable. From paper plates to cars, to phones. Everything is just disposable. It enters your life, it's there, and it passes away, and it's, it's gone, and you never think about it again. You put it in the magic box, and the magic box takes it away, and it goes somewhere else in the world buried with all the other stuff. You ever think about the fact that everything you ever owned probably still exists somewhere? It's all still out there. That toy that you loved when you were 12, you could still go dig it up and look at it. It's still there never left. You put it in the magic bin. It didn't disappear. It was just disposable, as all things tend to be today. All of these subtleties sort of form us little by little. If everything you touch is temporary and every job you work is just for a amount of time, every person is someone just passing through your life, nothing really matters, nothing is permanent, um, there is no commitment to anything, and so life becomes just what do you want to do? What, what would you like to commit your time to? No obligations, no responsibilities. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked a little bit about autonomy. But we also, I mean, there are obvious advantages to having a disposable culture. Things require no upkeep. They, they serve us well, and then they're just discarded. Um, there's no washing, sterilizing, cleaning, repairing of anything. Um, and we have a lot more time to not commit to other things. Um, and we have a word for it. We call, we, I mean, we have a word for people that, that income, like, we have a word for people like that, that were employees, that are employees of ours for like a short period of time. We call them um, what, 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 disposable workforce, right? They're temporary. They're contracted. They're disposable. They're not really, I have no responsibility for them. I give them their money. We have an agreement. Uh, and they move on. And this is especially true of, um, of like migrant workers and minimum wage employees, disposable workforce, right? This is how we tend to think of them and talk about them. That's why that word exists. Um, and in fact, the idea of a disposable workforce, people you, have, you owe no responsibility really to other than paying them or whatever, giving them what the, the contract says they're due, um, 
These are the, if you go back in time, these are from the beginning of humanity, the, these are the relationships that allowed things like slavery to even continue existing. Because we think of people as disposable, they don't matter, they're just tools, they're just instruments. And when we can think of people like this, um, we treat them like that. Uh, and so we, we try to sort of, we try to form a life that has all the benefits that come with normally committing to something without actually committing to it. And we want all the benefits from that. And oftentimes, both our economic and our sexual ethics, they share the same philosophy. Um, we think that somehow uh, we, can, we can try to have all the benefits without the responsibility for, for, for both of these things, and we think that somehow this gives us the best of both worlds. Um, that we'll get all the things, just the things we want and none of the things that we don't, and we're just going to take what we want and, and push that back, and so we end up with relationships that we're in for decades that never actually turn into any kind of commitments and then end up just sort of falling apart because we want the best of both worlds, but what we're actually getting is the worst of both worlds. Surface-level connections based upon attraction, which is simply a cultural construct, which really doesn't mean anything. Surface-level sort of... Um, surface-level sort of interactions with each other um, in, both, in both economics and human sexuality. And so we, um, we have no sense of belonging, responsibility for others, commitment to learning, to love someone in a way that makes both of you more Christ-like. But this is what a relationship is. It's committing to somebody and learning to, it's committing to, learning to love somebody over a very long period of time. And this is how it works. But instead, we take things like Sex, and we make that the center of everything, and then we, commodita- uh, com- we commodify it, really. We, we, we make it something sort of to trade. We date somebody because they're hot or beautiful, because we're attracted to them, and then we get to have them on our arm and walk them around, and everyone looks at us and says, wow, good for you. Look what you got. We have just turned a human being into a monetized sort of system of trading that raises our status in the community. When what was actually supposed to happen is you were supposed to receive this person, their past, their present, their future, their identity, everything about them, and commit to loving them uh, for the entirety of their journey and helping them being formed. And they the same for you. But instead, all our relationships are light, one-off flings, just little... Anything we can do to avoid any kind of responsibility with the, with the lives of the people around us. We want what we want from them, and we want nothing else. Um... And if that's all true, why should we even keep our promises? Why should we even make promises? What's the point of making promises to anyone or anything? If what is most desirable in our culture is, is autonomy and to remain as unconstrained as possible, then making and keeping promises is really this ridiculous thing that we do. It's ridiculous to commit to anything. It's something that really actually stands out when people are actually are really into commitment. When you meet somebody, you're like, wow, they're a they're a committer. And it's almost like, like, oh, I can't handle committers. People who really want to commit. <laughs> you have a really hard time with Jesus, man. Like, like it's uh, it, part, of, part of the holy living that Christians are called to is the call to make covenants in a world that is averse to committing to anything. Commit to people. Commit to each other. Be there with each other and for each other. In a world of complete impermanence, people making covenants and promises and commitments, it stands out as a weird thing. And do you know what the word holy means? It's the Greek word hagios, which means difference. Weird. Separate. That's what it means. We are called to be a people who don't quite look like everyone else. 
who do things from a different place for a different reason because our lives have been ordered around a whole different thing. And that's why today's passage, I mean, had a... Oh, wait a second. Did I skip? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Part two was elimination of, com- of commitments, by the way. <laughs> that was like half hour ago. Um, and as, as we read the text, the thing is, you can see people all through the text committing to each other. You can see people all through church history committing to each other, looking at each other and saying, hey, no matter what happens in your life, I am here for you. I'm not just talking about in some romantic way. I'm talking about two people coming together. That's why we read 1 Samuel today, the story of David and Jonathan, this incredible picture of commitment. Think of David committing himself to Jonathan that at any point in his life, if he is needed, he will be there. If there's anything you ever need, ever, I belong to you. I am yours. We have a hard time finding a place for these kind of commitments and relationships um, today. We tend to instantly sexualize them and be like, that has to be what this is. No, no, no. Committing to each other is what God does. Commits to us. This is what the early church has always done. In 1 Samuel 28, it says that they entered into this covenant before the Lord to be there for each other. They literally had a ceremony before God and said, we are committed to each other. To be there for each other's journey, wherever it goes. And you read a little farther, I mean, in verse 17, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Let me ask you a question. Is anyone in your life, including family, whatever, is anyone in your life committed to you in this way? Is there anyone that you can think of that that you could say, hey, at any moment in my life, I can call this person, they are there? Have you ever thought about that? Is there anyone in your life whom you are this committed to? whom your life sort of belongs to, that you are a tool in their life for good, for sanctification, for pushing them forward. And when you kind of put it like that and you think about it, most of us would answer no. And the half that might say yeah is just talking about their spouse and nobody else, which is wonderful. But I don't think it's enough. Because part of the posture is we also commit to as few people as possible. Um, Christians used to make these kinds of commitments all the time. Covenants to being faithful to someone, to care for their well-being, to seek their good and their flourishing, to, to assure that they never felt alone in this world. Like the very, the very presence of God. Imagine what would happen if more of us were, 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 were able to commit to each other in this way, to look each other in the eye and even just... Like, you know who you're committed to. Do they know that you're committed to them? Do they know that you're here for them? That if they actually need anything, you can call them? Um, Most of the time, we're not communicating these types of things, and I think it would be a Christ-like thing to do that. The permanence of God's faithfulness embodied in another human being in your life. Someone that you know that is in your life, that is constantly and always the faithful presence of Jesus there. Whenever they are there, it's as if Jesus himself is there, the way that they look at you and love you. Now, that's probably not a reality in any of our lives, but that's the goal. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're going for. And so the third thing I would say, the third obstacle to faithfulness um, behind disposable culture and elimination of commitments, I would say, careful, the door's broken. (laughs) I would say competing allegiances. Um, 
One of the main obstacles, again, that I said earlier to faithfulness in Christ in our land is our own nation of, not just that we've been discipled by the world, but it's, we have this notion of allegiance. Um, and we don't think it's a spiritual thing. But in fact, the word faith in the Greek is the word pistis, which means allegiance. And so we have a hard time imagining that we can't have allegiance to two things that we sort of make equal in our life, things that we live for, right? Um, Outside many churches, um, you will see oftentimes in America, and and let me, I'll preface this by like, this comes from a conversation I had about three weeks ago. I was visiting a friend who pastors a church. I'm very close to them. um, And outside of his, outside of his uh, front doors of the church is, you know, a little flower bed and a flagpole. And up at the top of the flagpole, it looks like this. And I just want to talk about it. It looks like this. Um, And I think everything the church does says something about who we are, about who we represent in the world, and about our vision for the world. Okay. And I grew up in churches. When we bought this church, there was was an American flag over here. And that second flag, if you don't recognize it, is called the Christian flag. That's what they call it over here, even though... Don't put a lot of weight on that. Christian, the, the church doesn't need a flag, doesn't have a flag. His banner over us is love. It's supposed to be sort of this thing that they can see without a flag. Um, but anyways, it had two flags. And the first thing we did is we came in and we just took them both down. Um, because it talks about our allegiances, right? Allegiances are important. Um, and so I talked to my friend whose church looked like this. And I said, hey, who puts these up every day? He said, oh, there's some people in the church. They come and... They, they have a little ceremony and they put the flag up every day. I said, interesting. Um, what would happen if you flipped them? If you thought maybe your faith could be above your allegiance to your country? What would happen if you asked them, hey, can you put the Christian flag on top? Oh, it'd be mutiny. It'd be terrible. It'd be absolutely atrocity. Absolute atrocity. Why? Um, because they view their faith and their allegiance to their country as one and the same and fully, completely intertwined. It's called dual allegiance. It's called um, competing allegiances. Um, I don't believe in that. I don't practice that. Um, most citizens of any nation um, would readily acknowledge that they owe a significant measure of allegiance and loyalty to the nation in which they live. And that's fine. At some level, we do owe some semblance of loyalty and allegiance to sort of, not allegiance, I would say, some loyalty and thankfulness to the people around us, to the communities in which we live, and the nation in which we live. All of that is important. When it comes to issues of allegiance, I would say this is one of the main reasons we have such a hard time actually ordering our lives around Jesus, because we fail to understand and grasp the role that Jesus actually is trying to play in your life. The role in which he's actually trying to play. I mean, there's a reason Jesus stood up and said, no one can serve two masters. You will either love one, and you will hate the other. And those are your options. So if you put two masters on a flagpole here, you got to put them in the right order to communicate to the world which one you're really here for, and then what comes just underneath that. And I would say, flags are wildly unnecessary in the life of the Christian. Our flag is our life. And so I have no desire to put up any flag. Because I, I want people to look at the church and see Jesus. That's what I want people to see. But is that faithfulness that we have to our country, is it total and unconditional in the same way that we are called to be faithful to God? And I think most Christians would say no. 
Um, but I think sometimes our actions betray that. And what happens when this loyalty calls us, when the loyalty to the nation in which we live calls us perhaps to kill for the empire or perhaps to die for the empire? And, and we sit back and we think about it and we say, um, surely for a people called to love our enemies, shouldn't we at least be willing to discuss such difficult questions with each other, even if there are no easy answers? Shouldn't we at least pause every time the nations in which we live make some kind of pronouncement? Shouldn't we at least pause and gather and pull apart all the cultural constructs that have been piled up on top and look at it through the eyes of Jesus and say, but what did Jesus say? And we'll start here and then we'll move to the next thing from there. Um, At what point... Do Christians actually accept and attempt to live out the hard truths of Jesus over the simple, pragmatic answers that culture is offering us? The simple answer is, the best way to get get rid of the bad guys is to kill them. The thing Jesus told us is the best way to get rid of the bad guys is to make them your brothers. By bringing the presence of Christ to them. And so no matter what we think or what conclusion we come to, these are two things we have to deal with. And it's a challenge to our faithfulness. If we're not willing to sit with the teachings of Christ first and then move to the teachings of the world around us, then are we really trying to be formed at all to Christ? That's why Paul said in Romans 12 to the Christians living in the empire, in in literally the city, the center of the empire of Rome, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. This new mind that he's saying, this renewing of your mind, this brand new mind that you're called to have is the mind of Jesus. And so he's calling you to sort of take that mind off in which you were raised, in which you maybe woke up today. Take that off for a minute. I want you to look at things through the lens of Jesus, and I want you to try to reform uh, and, and, and sort of redirect sort of your thoughts about this thing to move through the eyes and the heart of Christ. And so we at least need to start by admitting the tension between two people groups that we belong to, America and Christian. Or if you're Canadian, Canada, Canadian and Christian. If you're Iraqi, Iraqi and Christian. If you're Palestinian, Palestinian and Christian. We at least need to pause and look, yes, there are tensions between these two things and admit and confess where our allegiances actually truly should lie, first and foremost. And as Christians, um, we kind of have to ask, in what way are we... In what way are we American? In what ways are we American? In what ways are we Christian? And does the world know? And these are the questions that we should ponder constantly. They should be able to know. Um, as Christians, one of our main focuses should be the undiscipling, again, of ourselves from the, from the world around us. In order to do this, you need to ask some questions. And one of the main things you need to do, and I encourage this all the time, um, when groups like house churches or small groups of people are having questions about heavy social issues, they don't know what to do with. I don't know what to do with this. Um, what we tend to do is just default to culture. Whatever culture says and sounds the most loving, that's what I am. Because God is love, right? And so whatever's the most loving, that's what I'm going to be. Um, perhaps where we should start is with the Spirit of God and with the church. But perhaps we should gather some of you together who want to have that conversation and, and you say, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with this, so let's have this conversation. Get some of your people together and open it up. And the first thing you need to do is, is ask yourself, what 
views of this thing are completely formed by the culture around me? In what ways has culture formed my view of this thing? And begin to deconstruct it all and strip it all away and ask all the questions. In what ways did, what did Jesus talk about? Am I just trying to make Jesus say something that he's not so I can keep holding on to this thing? Am I trying to explain it away? Instead, pull it all away and sit with the Spirit of God and the fellow Christians, believers, your family that you've gathered with and pray and ask God to speak. Spend some time fasting together for a few days leading up to gather and pray and ask questions about what is God really trying to tell us? What does it mean, first and foremost, to be Christ-like? You can ask questions about what it means to be loving and caring and equitable and all these things, but the first thing you need to do is define the center of these things. We're going to center, we're going to define all these things by Christ. What does it mean to be Christ-like? That is the first question we need to ask. If Christ was standing here, what is Christ going to do in this situation? And I think oftentimes we see that we are going for what we want and then we're finding passages of the Bible to bless what we want. This is an unfaithful way of living. There's this passage by Soren Kierkegaard where he was asked a series of questions that he answered in a book called, uh, uh, he wrote a book called Christian Discourses, I think it was called. And in this book, he writes a series of, of questions to people that are uh, asking him all these difficult questions about life. And one person writes and says, should I get a suitable job in order to exert virtue or virtuous influence? And so they're asking about, like, what, what should I chase in life? What am I after? Perhaps if I get a suitable job, I'm going to get a lot of power and influence. Then I can influence people for Jesus. Isn't that always how it is? If I was rich, I could give a lot of money for Jesus, right? If I had, like, a giant house, I could have great, huge, amazing Bible studies for Jesus. Um, if I had a giant pool, pool parties for the youth group, for Jesus. Um, like, and it's always, like, sprinkle a little bit. And people are writing to Kierkegaard, and they're like, well, what do I do? What, what should I do in life? And he writes this whole discourse, and it goes like this. Should I get a suitable job in order to exert influence? His answer is no. You must first seek the kingdom of God. Then should we give all our money away and feed the poor? That, maybe that's what we should do. No, you should first seek the kingdom of God. Well, perhaps we should set out into the world and preach the message that people are, are to seek the kingdom of God. No, actually, first thing you should do is seek the kingdom of God. You. Seek it. Deconstruct and strip away all of the ways that you have been filled and discipled by the culture around you. Strip it all away and leave yourself with Jesus and form your life around that. That's what it means to be faithful. And first and foremost, our faithfulness must be manifested by faithfulness to God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. And when we focus on the kingdom of God, our relationships become more faithful to God and more faithful to people. One thing the scriptures say over and over again that is completely connected is that, is that our relationship with people and our relationship with God are intertwined infinitely. And in fact, you cannot fully love God unless you love people around you. And you cannot fully, really adequately love the people around you unless you love God. These two things work together always, all the time. And as we become more faithful to Jesus, we become more faithful to others, to each other. And we're oftentimes more faithful to ideas and structures than people. This is how churches become abusive. And this is why they begin to hide sin and hide trauma and hide abuse and all kinds of things. It's because they're very faithful not to the people. They're faithful to the institution. 
And the reason we do this is because we have been formed by culture to protect our income and our positions and our status at all costs because that's how God will work, because that's how we work. But that's actually not how God works. These are ideas that have been fashioned by the world, not by Christ. I would argue that when we build, begin to build churches that are massive and filled with famous people so that we can get these famous people and bring them into the church and then the world will be drawn in by the famous people that are there, all we're doing is celebrating how the world has been formed by the culture and fame. And I would say we, we, lose, more, we lose more Christians and more pastors to that than actually are brought in. We lose them. They get wrapped up and they never come back. They never come back down to what God is doing. And God tells you what he's doing. He says, I'm in the prisons. He says, I'm with the poor and the naked and the needy and the hungry. If you want to talk to me, that's where I'll be. And we think, so you're with the rock stars and the pop stars and the news anchors and the, and the presidents and this is who you're with and that's who I should be around, right? And exert influence over. No. Go where Jesus is and call them down. And so... We have to ask, how can our views be formed instead by Christ? In a world where we are convinced that God is on the side of our particular country over another, our particular economic structure over another, one particular governing style over another, we, what we must begin to do is ask if these structures and these desires actually come from the heart of Christ or if they come from the mind of people, from the societies around us in which we live. And if they do, we should re-examine our lives and begin the process of forming ourselves around the person and the teachings of Christ. And here's the thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will eventually fully be formed by Christ anyways. There will, be, there will come a time when every aspect of your life, your heart, your mind, your sexuality, all of it is fully formed by Christ. And either you can get that work done now, and you can start that process now, or you can wait for the day of the Lord, and God's going to do it for us. It's going to happen. God is going to set things right and take his place on the throne again. Each of us should have in our lives people stirring us to be formed by Christ more and more every single day. We need people who are deeply committed and faithful to us the same way that Christ is committed to us. That is the beauty of being able to gather and worship every single week is that we know God's gonna be there. We know he's gonna meet us there. We know Everywhere we go, we, we know God is there because God is faithful. He's promised and he's always there. Whether siblings or spouses or friends or spiritual brothers and sisters, be faithful to people. Learn to be faithful to them and learn to let them know that this is your posture towards them. If there are people in your life whose spiritual journey you are committed to, you should let them know that. It may be a little startling because it's likely nobody has ever cared really about their spiritual journey before. Because we've all been convinced, and again, formed by our culture around us, that we're all on our own. And so perhaps you need to let someone know that they don't have just a personal relationship with Jesus. We, we have a communal one. We're in this together. We're following Christ together. We're crawling towards the cross together, doing the best that we can, and having these com committed conversations. But, but these difficult conversations can only happen amongst people who are faithful to each other and committed to each other. So you can get honest and you can be serious and you can say the things that need to be said. And then when you're done, stand at the communion table as brothers and sisters together. When Paul writes to his churches, he doesn't just call them brothers and sisters. The word he uses there 
is this word that speaks of them as siblings. They really did believe that when they entered into the church, they were entering into a house, a family, a, a household, that they belonged to a people. And let me, let me just lay something out for this. This will be my last point. Um, there's a lot of talk of trying to build in America. I think we need to get really, really honest about building sort of the, the idea of multicultural churches in America. The vast majority of churches are white. Um, and it really is, as we've always heard, the most segregated hour. But the problem is, when you begin to build multicultural churches, what tends to happen is we've all been sort of We've all been formed in different ways by the cultures in which we live, and a lot of that also depends on whether or not we've had a hard time or a wonderful good time. Let me point something out to you. It's easy for white people to leave our church and go to another church. You can do this anytime. There's always a church right down the road who's doing something very similar. And so the second we're discomforted, we can just peace out and move on to the next thing. Did you know this is a unique white perspective? Did you know the other cultures in the city in which you live don't have that privilege. That when they have problems in their church, they have to work it out. Do you know why? Because there's not another Chinese or Hmong church, or there's not very many African-American churches. There's not another Spanish church that speaks their dialect. Or there's, not, there's not options. They are committed to each other as family, and they must then work it out. And so what happens is we try to plant multicultural churches, and what happens in these multicultural churches is um, a large percentage of the room is very comfortable walking out and leaving at any moment, and the other half knows that they are committed to the room. And so what happens is the sermons begin to be taught and preached in a way to keep the white people. Even the black pastors have to speak in the room in a way that caters to one group over another so that they don't leave because we are very good at being uncommitted and unfaithful to everything because we have access to everything. Our faithfulness our, our unfaithfulness, it's a sign of, it is a sign of wealth and privilege, but it's also a sign of our ungodliness. It's a symbol of our inability to love people like Christ does. And so for all those always calling out for like a multicultural church, You need to be deconstructed and rebuilt in the mindset of Christ because it's a lot more than you think it is. And most of the work that needs to be done needs to be done on our end as white evangelical Christians. Um, we have a, again, we are deeply committed to being uncommitted to anything. It makes life so much easier. We always have a backup plan. We always have a way out. We have to begin to reform our minds, to renew them, to have the mind of Christ who calls out to Paul and says, no, 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 no. It doesn't work this way anymore, okay? We can't perpetuate the false way of posturing towards each other that we have been. And I, I would say a lot of the churches that many of you came from your pastor probably felt and still feels about many of the people in his church that it's very one-sided. He's there for you at three in the morning when you called him that one time, when you needed prayer, when you were terrified because somebody hadn't come home and they were missing. And he was there for you and he cared. But the second you're uncomfortable, you're gone. So the commitment is always one-sided. And all, 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 
all pastors and scholars and teachers are asking is that we be in this together. Is that we commit to each other and we have the difficult conversations faithfully in safety with each other. That's the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and for these people. Continue to guide us and change us and lead us and form us and fashion us in your image, in your image alone. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right, stand with me. Let's end this. I look so forward to the day when we can take communion again. I think it's, I think it's pretty soon. We're, we're talking about it. We'll see. We'll see. All right, Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Father's Day you've ever had, even if you're not a father.